0: Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
1: And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. As I promised last week, I will be joined by Don Schmidt. And we've been talking about some of the older cases in UFOs, some of the way the UFO investigations have gone, and some of the stuff that's uh, come out recently, such as the uh, discussion of the UAPs and that uh, report from The Sun last week that talked about the um, 1,574 documents they had received in their FOIA request from um, to the government about the documents and how that really didn't provide us with much Additional information. Don, welcome back to a different perspective after a Hello. week off.
2: <laughs> Is it already a week? My God! Well, it's great to be back with you, Kevin. Thank you.
1: Um, I think we kind of exhausted MJ12. We have exhausted abductions. We've talked a little bit about Roswell, um, but before we leave Roswell, let's just do let's just uh, do one more thing, and that's Glenn Dennis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Dennis, of course, was the mortician who talked about uh, his nurse pal who was involved in a preliminary autopsy of the alien bodies at the base hospital in Roswell and that sort of thing. Um, I think I abandoned him much earlier than you did. I believe you've abandoned that testimony at this point. What is your opinion of of Glenn Dennis?
2: Well, and in saying abandon him specifically in his uh, recounting his run-in or his experience at the base hospital with uh, the nurse, with the the phony name he had provided us, Naomi Self. And it was mainly for the fact that he gave us the false name. Now, I had confronted Glenn. I think the reason I wasn't as quick to dismiss Glenn was because I was still in contact with him face-to-face. I was the one, and, and Tom Carey was with me at the time when I confronted him. And accused him of providing us the wrong name and then actually suggesting to him that he was having an affair with this nurse at the time. And that's what he was covering up the fact that his first wife was still alive at that time, his wife, his second wife, Kay, was still there. And uh, Tom was witness to his blowing up at, at me. And how dare you accuse me of that? Well, I accuse you of that because that's what I'm convinced was happening. And he finally pretty much admitted that. That he was covering up for the fact that, you know, he was he was cheating on his, his wife at that time. And back then that was a much bigger uh you know scandal than than today by today's standards. So it, it wasn't accepting as, as an excuse as as much as he had acknowledged. That, that was the case.
1: Well, then the question becomes: Why? Uh, we're talking to him in the early 1990s. Um, his marriage to his first wife is is over; it's divorced. He's now married to Kay. Uh, what would possess him to come up with this cockamamie story to cover up an affair that had no effect on her or us or anything else?
2: Well, I think the Air Force at least provided a uh, a, a nurse. In the, in, the, in the guise of Adeline Fatten, who was a member of the M-Squad at the base hospital on 47th. And that, uh, as Glenn had described Naomi, as looking like a young Audrey Hepburn, black hair, black, big black eyes, and someone who had considered going into the sisterhood within the Catholic Church prior to going into the uh, Army Nurse Corps. And she matched that, you know, description. And that she too had been transferred to England within a few weeks after the incident. So was that a coincidence, or did was that the nurse that Glenn was 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 having this affair with? And then through that the Air Force also determined that she died a few years thereafter of a childhood disease. Not the plane crash that Glenn claimed or that Glenn said he was told, that type of thing. But there is someone, I mean, there is a nurse that at least matches that MO in that regard. The crash, again, it comes back to why did Glenn lie about her? Why did he not just tell us that she was the nurse?
1: But the, but the point really is she wasn't involved in an autopsy there at the base.
2: No, no. Not that we're aware of and...
1: And, and, and that's the real point. There's no, in the 1990s, there's no reason to even bring this up. No. Unless unless he has some ulterior motive to doing that. Um, talking about having seen the, bo- not seen the bodies, but talk to the nurse who'd seen the bodies and that the, the nurse who was telling him all about this, the crash and what had happened. There's, there's no motivation for him to um, create this cover story uh, for an affair that ended, decades earlier and has no effect, had no effect on the situation in the 1990s. It just makes no sense at all that he would.
2: And it always bothered us, this claim that he was able to just drive right onto the base and drive right out to the base hospital at the time that this was all going down. And that he even, yeah he recalled too, He even when we first took him out to where the hospital had originally been located and the rehab center that now is gone, but at that time was built to the west of where the base hospital originally was. And he was trying to convince us that the loading dock area at that new building was the original from the base hospital when it wasn't. So he was even steering us wrong regarding even the building itself, demonstrating that for you to claim that you walked in through those back doors of that ER examination room, when you couldn't even tell us the correct location when you took us there, many years thereafter, you know, again painted this this impression that he uh, was just steering us along when we came to that portion of the story about actually encountering the nurse at the hospital, and then a day or two later meeting with her at the PX and her drawing a sketch of this preliminary autopsy. It, it, well, here's it, another here's it.
1: another. Trial. Here's another problem. Where did we get the name Glenn Dennis? We got it from Walter Hot, Right. And you remember standing outside that bank building where they had the first museum up on the seventh or eighth floor or whatever it was across oh, the street oh, from what right. used to be the Greyhound bus depot. Bus people, correct. And I asked Walter about Glenn Dennis, and he said, everything he tells you is golden. You can believe it. Mm-hmm. Walter had to know the story wasn't true.
2: But it but it. But the, the story originally that I recall came to us to Bob Shirkey, that Shirky was the one who Glenn supposedly first confided to. And then it came to us and actually Shirky had also approached Stan Friedman about, you remember Stan got to Glenn before we did. No, they, he didn't. Well, I know, but they, they, but they had a sit down where they actually talked to one another.
1: Yes, but I talked to Glenn Dennis before Stan Friedman got, got right. involved in it, and I had an appointment with uh, Glenn Dennis. It would have been the uh, I think four or five days after Stan had uh, right sat right. down with him,
2: and then we um, said, and then we actually got him on tape with Mark Wolf, the late Mark Wolf. Yes, in November of nineteen ninety with the uh, the documentary, the first Gravel documentary. Right.
1: But but here's here's the point: Walter Hot had to know Glenn Dennis wasn't telling the truth. We got the name from. Glenn uh, from Walter Hott, not from Shirky, because remember, we're sitting in Walter Hott's uh, living room talking about this. And Walter says to us, I know the name you're fishing for. It's Glenn Dennis. I got the name. I got the idea there was a mortician involved from Cliff Stone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. So I had been looking for the mortician and Walter Hott gave us the name. But so the question becomes at this point. Is is. Why would Walter Hot support Glenn Dennis's story? With because Walter Hot had to know it wasn't true.
2: Or if, in retrospect, we would now have the chance, we would ask Walter, "Did you were you aware of the story? Were you aware of the story that he would then provide us at the time that you told us about Glenn?" Uh, see, I guess we don't know that Walter knew anything more than Glenn had worked for the Ballard Funeral Home at the time of the incident. As to the extent of his involvement, was that news to us as well as to Walter at the time? I guess we won't know.
1: Well, what remember? Walter told us that he and Glenn Dennis had shared an office at one point. Uh, his art gallery was in one part of the building, and 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 Glenn Dennis's was in office was in another part of the building. So they knew each other for many many years. Correct. Right. So I'm just bothered by Walter Hott defending. Endorsing Glenn Dennis's tale, or, which we now know is not true.
2: No, or supporting a friend, we don't know. We don't
1: know. Well, uh, yeah, uh, okay, we can we can go there, I suppose. Um, I think we should move into some of the modern problems with ufology, mm-hmm. and one of those is Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Jacques Ballet's book. I had Jacques Ballet on the program. I talked to okay. him extensively about about oh, it. Okay. Uh, the book. I read the book. It was horrible. I had to really struggle through it. A lot of nonsense in there that had no relevance to the initial story. Um, We're gonna have to take a break here in a moment. So I'm gonna set this up for the next segment. One of the main witnesses is a fellow you talked to in the 1990s.
2: Remy Blanco.
1: Yes, absolutely. Before Paulo Harris and, and Jacques Vallée got a hold of him and chatted with him and that sort of thing. So you had the story earlier. I think Stan may have had it even earlier than that. He may have.
2: it, It was around that same time, right?
1: So we've got this story, Trinity. So we're going to talk to it from a position of... Um, having some personal firsthand knowledge about that story and uh, some of the other information that came out in the discussion with uh, with Baca and that sort of thing, and what Jacques Ballet had said. Uh, once again, the blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I say this only because. It it is an opportunity for me to provide a little bit of additional information for somebody who's interested in that additional information about the things that we talk about on the program here. So Don and I will be back right after this, and we'll be talking about Trinity. So please stick around. And we are back. I'm joined by Don Schmidt. We've been talking about a lot of things in the world of ufology. Uh, From the last uh, program last week, we talked about UAPs and the government reopening investigations, uh, which are going to be classified immediately, apparently from what they've said. Uh, We've talked about some of the history of UFOs. We talked about um, some of the problems with the Roswell case and abductions and things like that. Uh, When we went away here, um, I had mentioned Trinity, which is the book that uh, Jacques Vallée and Perola Harris had published last June. I guess it came out last June, talking about a UFO crash near San Antonio, New Mexico, which if you're driving from Roswell to Socorro, you probably have gone through um, Santa Fe. Or, I'm sorry, San Antonio, uh, New Mexico. It's a little small town. Two young boys who were seven and nine, I think it was at the time, 1945, came across the crashed UFO and explored it and studied it and did all kinds of things like that. Um, this is a story that Remy Baca has been pushing for literally, I guess, decades. Uh, and I, I mentioned before we went away, and and Don kind of confirmed this, that he had talked to Remy Baca in the late 1990s about this. Uh, tell us a little bit about your encounter with, with Remy Baca.
2: I had just uh, given a, uh, a presentation in um, Ventura, California, just north of L.A. And I was introduced to, uh, and I heard it as Ray Baca at that time. And he uh, had me sign a copy of a Roswell book. He had just heard the whole lecture as far as uh, on Roswell, and he described that uh, he was present on the planes in 1947 trying to draw that connection that he was a potential witness and uh, because already we were discounting anything happening on the planes especially in july of 1947 it remained in my gray basket for all those years until he resurfaced about 10 years later and uh, was claiming that he had an actual artifact, something from the crash. And the good partner that I am, I referred him immediately to Tom Carey. I felt I you know, didn't want anything further to do with this because um, you know, he, was, he was making claims that I felt could not be uh, justified, couldn't be verified. And so Tom would engage him and he would send Tom pictures of uh, this artifact, which we both looked at and we're going, where have we seen this before? This looks familiar. And finally, I came up with the notion that this was something that looked like it was part of a windmill, as it turns out, it was. It was the internal rotor shaft of a rudder blade from a, a windmill that we so often would see in New Mexico. Well. Again, it fell to the wayside, nothing became of it. And then all of a sudden, next thing we know, Paula Harris is promoting this case. And not that it happened on the Plains, but that it happened, and as we both know, there are many areas of New Mexico that are called the Plains. Whether it be a local rancher, you know, referring to a particular pasture or area on their own ranch or certain areas of New Mexico itself. And that it happened in San Antonio or excuse me, uh, yeah, San Antonio, uh, uh, New Mexico, and that it happened not in 1947, but rather in 1945, two years before. And then to hear the military's involved, and then for the book to come out, Trinity by Valet and and Harris. And I think like yourself, what bothered me most about the case was not only the change of the date location, but the behavior of the military that it was that that nonchalant, that it was that lacking in security, that they were, and then the idea that they were destroying the wreckage, that they were burning it, they were burying it, they were acting like uh, this was something routine, and that they left even unattended vehicles and would return the next day to resume the recovery, the retrieval operation, that type of thing. So none of it painted, you know, genuine in that regard. And yet there were all these trappings, all these overlappings about Roswell. And as I had mentioned, we had met after I'd given a Roswell lecture. He bought- well, let,
1: me, let me interrupt let me interrupt here because there's one point you said just a moment ago all these trappings of Roswell and I, I know what you meant by that it means that a lot of the descriptions he was giving were things that came out of the Roswell case it sounded right. exactly like it had been lifted from the Roswell case which is suggestive of something that isn't accurate and isn't true
2: right exactly exactly and so thank you for that and just it it, it was a a case that as a result was quickly dismissed because there was nothing that smacked of reality, nothing that smacked of even the terrain New Mexico as we both know it. There was nothing that suggested an actual military recovery operation as you, especially in your case, Kevin, you would anticipate as you would expect. So it's like, what does it take to finally dismiss this as being just so much fantasy? And as we have Raimi Baca, as Tom recorded him in one of their phone conversations, actually asking him, how can I make money off of this? And that in itself to me should be the kiss of death. and the story. Because you're clearly demonstrating that this is all this is to you. How can I make money off of my story, per se?
1: Well, is it single witness? I mean, there were two young boys involved in it. Um, there was another fellow who was with Remy Baca. Uh, did anybody interview him about what he had seen and what he had done?
2: No, not as far as any investigation. I'm sure, I mean, they would claim that their Fathers were involved. They would claim that they even in retrieving some of the wreckage that they, they hung pieces from their Christmas trees, you know, <laughs> years thereafter. And, and again, what there should be a whole train of witnesses within the families alone. And you read the book, where was this effort to talk? I mean, you and I, again, we walked the walk. We tracked down and we we went to the the very homes of every potential witness we could. I don't see that here, that you would rely on one lone individual to tell you the whole story, and you're able to write a whole book about it.
1: Well, I, th- I think the important point is that, that uh, kind of like the Gerald Anderson story that we were talking about before, all the relevant witnesses were already dead before they began talking about it, so you couldn't go to the witnesses and say, the family and say, "Is this true? Uh, did this happen? Where was? What were we doing here?" Uh, I want to I, I want to point out because I, I think it's important that the the stuff they hung from the Christmas tree was sort of like tinsel, that mm-hmm. it was sparkly ribbons of of um, metal that they they hung from the Christmas tree. And so the question to them becomes: If you had all this material, where is it now? Where is it now? You know, somehow it always disappears. And I, that's kind of the problem with the Roswell case, too. Every time we've heard that, you know, somebody has a piece of debris or somebody has done this or somebody's done that, we can never get to the point where we've got that piece of evidence. It always seems to vanish. It's a friend of a friend type story.
2: Well, you remember the case with Walt Whitmore, Jr., the son of uh, the majority owner of the radio station KGFL, and that he had a piece from, uh, you know, that Brazel, the, the ranch foreman, had actually brought into town that Sunday, July 6th, and he kept this piece in that bank security box for like 30 years, and then he returned home with it. He died after we had met with him shortly. Well, let
1: let, let me clarify that one point. He, He made a big deal about how he had kept it in a safe deposit box for years and years and years, Right. but then he was going to take a trip to Europe, and he had to put something else into the um safety deposit box so he took that debris out and he took it home with him mm-hmm. and it, and then it put it in his junk junk room as he called it Correct. so my question is you've got something that you thought was of historical significance maybe of great value that you kept in a safe deposit box for years and years and years and then suddenly you decided well it's not as important as some other stuff i'll just take it home and throw it into my junk my junk room
2: and for
1: and all it, of it
2: by by our and by the late Max Latell, who had introduced us to uh, Whitmore Jr. Again, conveniently disappears. Gone? Or
1: or his discussions with the late Carl Flock.
2: Right. Right.
1: But uh, so um, this sort of relates to the Trinity case because we have the same situation there. Here's this this debris that they've collected from this UFO crash um, and they've Spread it amongst the family members, and they've kept it for years and years and years. And suddenly, when we show up to investigate, we end up with absolutely nothing.
2: But not to diminish the comparison to Roswell in this context, because Roswell as an historic event, it's documented. There was a press release. The person, the personnel who were involved, the military base who was involved in the recovery operation, whereas case with Trinity, there is no such documentation, there is no such press release, there are no such witnesses, there are no military witnesses that we're aware of at all. And the fact that the date was changed, at least in my case, where I was originally, it was 1947, and now it becomes 1945. So that's where the, the comparison ends, that in some of the disappearance of the alleged wreckage, yes. But aside from that, there is not, uh, no comparison. It's night and day.
1: Well, the question becomes, I mean, Jacques Vallée is a well-known scientist, uh, respected in the UFO community for a lot of the work that he has done. What would possess him to get involved in something that this that is this tenuous?
2: Well, in an article I did uh, last year in reference to the book, in regards to the book, and I, I cited the, 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 the case of uh, Jalen Hynek. And, and, and working with him in the, the last number of years of his life, he would all, often lament I'm an old man in a hurry. I'm an old man in a hurry. And I think it's one of, the, one of the reasons that Hynek too fell into that state of urgency that the only thing and the one thing that is going to prove the reality of the phenomenon overnight is hardware a piece of physical evidence, and how Jacques has now come full circle as well, that he never would give us the time of day regarding Roswell, but yet now he has himself you know, became, become involved as far as in a you know, so-called crash retrieval case with the hope that he's going to finally come up with the Holy Grail. Well,
1: let's, let's break off there because we're going to have to take a break, obviously. Um, I've got pictures or links to pictures of the debris from this uh, Trinity case on my blog, and I'll put a link to it on the blog uh, for those who would like to take a look at those pictures and, and my review of the book uh, as well at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Don and I will be back in just a moment talking more about UFOs and Trinity and what is going on in the world of UFOs today. So please stick around.
0: you enjoy paranormal sci-fi romance, yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines, then you won't want to miss Kahir O'Donnell's latest exciting release, To Taste You Again. Alien Lord Kane McKean knew the moment that his destined mate was born. He watched from afar, waiting for her to grow from child to woman. However, before she was old enough, she was stolen from her home world by flesh pirates. Kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber, a ten-year-old girl in a woman's body. He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or
1: we are back talking about UFOs. What else? Uh, Don Schmidt is the guest. We were uh, dissecting, I think would be the word, uh, Jacques Vallée's book, Trinity. Uh, Don, as I mentioned, and he's mentioned, had an opportunity to uh, chat himself with the, with the main witness, um, a man who I guess we don't find particularly credible. Um, and a little bit surprised by Jacques Vallée's adherence to this tale. When we look at the overall story, is there any aspect of it that uh, hints about what may have really happened or is it a complete and total invention by uh, Remy Banca?
2: Well, as I originally mentioned, what really appalled me was their recounting the behavior of the military. I mean, they're described like the Keystone Cops. I mean, you could just as well have inserted the Three Stooges the way they bumbled through the entire situation and the total lack of security and having an audience. And I mean, in direct contrast to Roswell, where you would get shooed away, you'd be waved away, you'd be taken aside and at gunpoint would be told, you know, you didn't see anything, nothing happened here. You're never going to repeat what you just witnessed, that type of thing. Whereas in this case, which you would think would have been a complete, a total, uh, as far as red flag, to a valet, there's nothing military about their response to this. It's like, who were these people? If, if, if this did happen as described, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, post-World War II, where the, with the beginning of the Cold War, And the idea that they would have a recovery operation of a craft of such, you know, highly advanced technology. And they would treat it as though they were just scraping up the remains of a a car accident. And then allowing the boys to just rummage through and remove pieces and behave as though, hey, everyone, you know, is free to come in and grab whatever souvenirs. And then hang them from their Christmas trees like, uh, like, so much tinsel thereafter no no
1: well couldn't couldn't an argument be made that they were exposed to something the military was exposed to something that they were unprepared for and they wouldn't have recognized the importance of the crash site and so that the security might have been a little bit lax
2: well i think if that be the case security would ev- would have been even stricter would have been even more you know enhanced even though, as we would joke, even with Roswell, there, there was nothing in the Army field manual at that time how to respond to that. And that's when and you would be the, the expert on that. That's when you pull out all the stops. That's when you don't relax security, you increase them. If you, if you can't identify something, you don't, you don't pull back on, on restrictions, you elevate them.
1: Well, I, th- I think the important point is, and, and you've, you've alluded to this, but what struck me in the book was that they loaded the object onto a flatbed truck to drive it out of there. They got everything ready to go. They put a tarp over it, and then they all went to lunch. Yeah. Took off to town and, and to lunch, and so the two boys who'd been spying on them for a couple of days ran down there and got underneath the tarp, and one of them climbed up into the craft.
2: Precisely. They left They left the truck. They left the the craft unattended unsecured and then the description that whatever uh, wreckage remained they discarded they burned <laughs> I'm
1: sorry or buried
2: or buried right uh no no and I think, I think from reality
1: I think I think in the book it says that they went back years later and, and meaning Valet and Harris went back to the site where it supposedly happened and the terrain had changed radically because of uh, weathering. I mean, there was some kind of flood and where right. they had buried the debris was now under 20 feet of additional yeah. Yeah. Um, ground cover. So they wouldn't be able to locate it anyway. I mean, this is just a, a good excuse for not being able to provide any, any evidence. But but there we are. Um does this, doesn't, doesn't this hurt the entire UFO community, though, when we have this kind of thing come out that's so blatantly untrue?
2: Well, the book sold well. I mean, it, it's done well. I mean, you look at the number of reviews at um, Amazon, and they're all glowing. They're all, you know, they're almost all, you know, accepting of this case. So I guess yes and no. To the unwashed who, again, Uh, The the novices who just believe everything and anything regarding this subject, I suppose it uh, draws more people into the discussion. But then those of us who look at this historically and look at it as far as scientifically and just on the very nature of what would have and what should have transpired if the event actually took place. And we're also very familiar with New Mexico, the terrain, the the the, the, uh, the uh, area you know in, in question and the accessibility. And so we have to put this all together, and it isn't a case of just shaking it up and throwing it on the table and seeing what numbers come up. No, we have to base it on you know the t- the time that this allegedly happened. And as a result, we come away with, uh, there's absolutely zero evidence. There's nothing to substantiate this. There's no benchmark. There's no press release. There are no military witnesses to substantiate this. So all we can do is, uh, sorry, Um, it doesn't even make for a good book.
1: Well, this kind of reminds me of uh, Philip Corso. Mm -hmm. and the day after Roswell, which gets a great deal of play. And yet um, anybody familiar with military operations understands that his description of the convoy going from Roswell to right field uh, is inaccurate. The description of the um, military society of the time, where the officer corps was separated from the enlisted corps by I guess sociological barriers, mm-hmm. not to mention military barriers, that uh, uh, the officers didn't necessarily fraternize with yeah, the enlisted right. guys. I think, right. and in today's military, a lot of that has changed. But back in 1947, that's the, the way it was. You just didn't hang around with the enlisted guys. Right. Um, right. Air crews may have been a little bit different because I know, in my experience in Vietnam, uh, we hung around with the air crews because we were all working together on a mission in a combat environment. But when you're outside that and you're more in a peaceful, peaceful peacetime uh, environment that there was this great chasm between the officers and the enlisted men. In fact, I knew a, a girl a long time ago who told me that she had a good friend when her, her father was in military and, and her good friend's father was in the military and they would play together until they discovered that her father was a, an officer and her friend's father was an enlisted man and she could no longer play with that girl. It gives you an idea of the chasm that uh, separated the, the enlisted ranks from the officer ranks. But Corso's tale, um, I think, has been disproven quite a bit. Um, it, well, what is, what,
2: I'm sure you are as well. We're often asked, well, how come you didn't include Corso in your writing? How come you, you haven't mentioned Corso in your presentation? And as we both uh, can you know, very confidently say it's because we find the, his story totally unreliable. We find we, we know for a fact that he was highly influenced by a known as far as uh, fabricator who we exposed, that being Frank Kaufman. We know for a fact that when you read the of book the day after, that the entire summary at the beginning of the book is 100% Frank Kaufman. So here you are, your, your claim is that you're a first-hand witness and you have to rely on another to provide you with the details. And then no less, you, you rely on a fabricator to provide you with the storyline. So again, it, 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 it hardly smacks of reality and uh, the truthfulness in the story.
1: Well, I know that Kaufman and um, Corso appeared on a radio program together. Mm -hmm. And every time there was a conflict in the stories, Corso would bend to Kaufman's version of it.
2: Correct, correct.
1: um, Because, well, Corso believed Kaufman was telling the truth. And of course, we know now that Kaufman wasn't telling the truth. We got fooled by Kaufman, who was um, a nice enough fellow you know, I mean, always we
2: had breakfast. Always took us up <laughs> to breakfast, <laughs> and would pay for it, which and would pay for it, and he provided, would suggest that somebody else was paying for it.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, it was all part of his expense account, so we should allow him to pay for it. Sure, Frank, yeah, buy us, buy us a couple of eggs and a hunk of toast. I'm, I'm on board. Um, let's
2: well, see, the most I, telling thing was when um, I asked because they had been to Roswell on two previous occasions before penning the book, sitting down and actually writing this. And I asked now in coming in into Roswell, now where did you stay? Because I was curious as to who were they talking with? Who were they contacting as far as doing their own research? And then to find out that both times they stayed with Frank Kaufman. So how was it that they even you know coincidentally came together? And so it was like, it was a marriage made in hell, so to speak. And that there was nothing good that would become of this. And we would have warned them, no, 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 Kaufman would be the last one we would recommend you staying with. But nonetheless, there it is. Well, the one
1: other thing I probably should point out, um, being publishers in, in the New York area knew who I was, meaning I had submitted books on UFOs, and I had published a number of books on UFOs one of the editors sent me a copy of their proposal for their book, the uh, Corso's book. And uh, I was going through that and I came to the point where Corso claimed to have been a member of MJ-12. Yes, yes. And I wrote to, I, I wrote back to the publisher and I said, no, Don't. Son, there is no MJ-12. This is this is a blatant lie. Right. And they passed on the book, probably angry at me because uh, the book did, did very well and made them a lot of money. But the fact of the matter was that it wasn't, It wasn't an honest account of what was going on. Uh, We're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the more modern issues in ufology and what's going on and who's doing what and how well they're doing it. And as always, take a look at www.cavinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you have a chance and you're interested in Roswell, take a look at Understanding Roswell. I think there's a lot of information in there. It's going to be a little bit new and a little bit surprising. Other than that, please stick around. And I'll be back with uh, Don Schmidt in just a moment.
0: You enjoy paranormal sci-fi romance yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines then you won't want to miss kahir o'donnell's latest exciting release to taste you again alien lord kane mckean knew the moment that his destined mate was born he watched from afar waiting for her to grow from child to woman however before she was old enough she was stolen from her home world by flush pirates kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber a ten-year-old girl, in a woman's body. He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or CahiraO'Donnell.com.
1: And welcome back to A Different Perspective. I'm still the host, Kevin Randall, believe it or not. Uh, I think we've pretty well exhausted Corso and his nonsense and Jacques Vallée and his nonsense. And I noticed that the last books I've done, uh, Understanding Roswell and Level Land, uh, for example, and and the book on on Socorro, are are deep in the past. Uh, the, The only book that I've done recently that sort of brings us into the modern world is UFOs in the Deep State, mm-hmm. and a, a look at how we got to this point in ufology today, where, we're, where we are now. Uh, what is your take on that sort of thing, where where ufology is going? What can we expect in the future?
2: Well, you, you certainly remember one of the ways we even originally met was with your book that uh, it came out the october uh, october scenario with the very idea that that wave in the fall of 1973 was the, the arrival the first time that we had actually been visited and i would I would turn it the other way around that the last true wave the last true confrontation or visitation was that fall of 73 that whatever the phenomenon, whatever its origins, in many ways, it went home. You know, they finished up whatever their purpose, whatever their agenda here. And we haven't had any true waves since 1973. And so the question, and and I think you would fall in the same camp, that whenever I hear of a sighting today, you know, you go, got to be ours. I mean, the way just as far as the drone technology alone almost would put the possibility of a, a legitimate UFO sighting in maybe now 1% of all sighting. Before it was 5%. Now it's it's down to maybe 1%. So it, it comes down to is the phenomenon itself that relevant any longer juxtaposed to, well, now if there are still secluded answers if there's any disclosure forthcoming that's where we need to start focusing that's what we need to start championing that cause the idea that if we can't have congressional hearings on this subject then there's nothing new forthcoming and well, you
1: said something you said something interesting i want to i want to explore here i've been looking at the sightings the, the triangular sightings sightings of triangles mm-hmm. And and the number of sightings of triangles has, has exploded over the last few years. And I just put up I just put up on the blog um, a, a brief discussion in, in a topic called updates, and I look at some triangles. But there's a picture that was taken in oh I forget exactly where now um, Missouri. Anyhow, it no yeah uh, no Kansas. I'm sorry, Kansas, Wichita, Kansas. Just just came to me. Of a triangular shaped object. I mean, it's a great picture. It's got a contrail, but the idea is it's one of ours. It's and it has and, a
2: contrail. It has a contrail.
1: Yes, and 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 it's in this great photograph. I mean, the, the objects are high in the sky, and the guy managed to get a picture of it. And a couple of weeks before, guys near Amarillo, Texas. I always want to call it Armadillo, Texas. I know Amarillo, I know,
2: Texas. I know, I know right. <laughs>
1: had also. Seen uh, a triangular shaped object like that. And then I put up a picture of a triangular shaped balloon on that, suggesting that an awful lot of the sightings of triangles in today's environment are of um, our technology. Exactly. uh, Advancements in our technology. The one thing that Dave Mahler told me last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, when I chatted with him on the uh, program, was the earlier triangle sightings, he noted that they were flying blunt side forward correct. which is not aerodynamic and nope. the, the modern sightings now it's the the apex forward and that seemed to be a point where we could discriminate between a trashly based object and maybe something that wasn't trashly based but it's just that kind of thing um our technology is moving to the point where um it is not like anything we're used to with of of an airplane with the wings and the tail and all of that stuff we're moving into the flying wing phenomenon the b2 bomber for example and now we've got the triangular shaped object Uh, and i have no clue as to what these guys photographed i believe it's trustfully based uh, but the photograph uh, there's no ground detail or anything like that in it it's just the the object in the sky high in the sky with the contrail following it it's clearly something that's trustfully based
2: And you know that, uh, I think it was everyone's impression, the first time they saw the F-117, the stealth fighter, just the silhouette from looking straight on from the front. It was something right out of Star Wars. And the idea that there's nothing aerodynamic about that aircraft, that if not for all the onboard computers that are constantly adjusting, it's attitude, its altitude and everything else, it would drop like a rock. It's one of the reasons they have crashed as often as they have, for nothing more than a a computer malfunction. And so we've reached a point that unless there is an actual, you know, and I would almost have to wonder, it would have to truly be something beyond our comprehension, almost to the point as Arthur C. Clarke would suggest that it would almost appear magical, that we should almost expect that some technology from another planet, another world would be like magic, that it would leave you awestruck, that there would just be nothing that uh, could you know, define that observation. We've already reached a point that, my God, that window is getting smaller and smaller, that we're reaching a point that we too. Just imagine if the apollo program the space program would have continued unabated we grew up with you know the kennedy you know space program that we were going to be we were going to set foot on the moon by 1970 and the plan was we were going to do the same on mars by 1980 by the mid 80s that type of thing and so I don't want to get into the secret space program because I don't, I don't believe that I don't fall into that, you know? Well,
1: let me, let me point out there is, there was a secret space program and we discussed UFOs in the deep state and it was canceled uh, they were training the astronauts in at Vandenberg Air Force Base, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's not the secret space program that we hear in the UFO community that's where we've got the,
2: the. That's what I, I meant to say. We're
1: right. sending we're sending people to planets in other solar systems. We're already
2: occupying. You know, we already have a base on the dark side of the moon, and we're already you know colonizing Mars and that type of thing. Of course.
1: Well, I think that um, when we look at uh, ufology today, as it Really isn't advancing at all. We're no. doing the same things we always did. We cannot seem to get a grasp on it. I know Rich Reynolds at one point said that we geezers, you and I and the other people, should get out of the way and let the youngsters take over. but they don't seem to have the capability to do the investigations, no. nor do they have the desire to do
2: them. No, they don't and they don't have the historic background. They don't have the the knowledge. They don't have had the 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 uh, minefield to walk through as far as to get where we are. I mean, the the young people need to uh, give us credit that we are where we are because you have the old geezers that have essentially jousted with the powers that be for all this time. I think I I myself have found that I often, I, I look back and I think when there was this mutual, and I won't use the word enemy, but at least it was the opposition, especially through the years of Blue Book, that you actually had someone to challenge, someone to debate with on the issue, on the subject. And it was like, who is gonna get to the finish line first? And I I, I personally feel that you had mentioned that you had uh, the, uh, the grand opportunity of actually meeting Donald Kehoe and I often think that the reason that they spoon fed Kehoe, the reason that Kehoe had the relationship he had with the Pentagon was because they had to keep him on a short leash. They had, they needed to keep him at arm's length. And they did that by providing him mundane cases, albeit they were, they were military, but they didn't suggest occupants. They didn't suggest crashes. Or anything of, of, of a piloted of an occupied nature. And as a result, Kehoe, you know, he wrote the wonderful books that he did of these great military cases, but they weren't the most profound, they weren't the best cases that they had at that time.
1: And well, the so- other thing we can the other thing we can say is the, the, the really great cases didn't show up in Blue Book either. I mean, how many cases of occupants are in Blue Book that they didn't say, well, it's a psychological problem? And uh, there's Zamora, there's um, one or two others where they said, uh, you know, it's an unidentified case with an occupant's involved. But for the most part, if you saw an occupant, you were immediately labeled as psychological and they blew the whole thing off. They didn't bother to investigate it or they did it surreptitiously. And I think of right. Kelly Hopkinsville at that point where uh, some guy. Uh, from, from what was it, Campbell Air Force Base investigated for him and sent him information and they, so they could say, well, we didn't really investigate this, but they had the information.
2: They had the information. And, you know, and Heineken, as well as the uh, the chief scientific consultant of Blue Book, often commented that uh, he was fully aware that the hardcore, as he would put it, cases were going upstairs. We're not going to Blue Book. They were going directly to the Pentagon. And so we've always had to deal with the mundane in that regard so I guess it would come back to and it was the reason that that keyhole himself didn't believe that these were even mancraft because there was nothing that the Air Force was providing him even suggested that and well, so we're gonna
1: have to, we're gonna have to leave it there I'm afraid because we oh. just bump, bump bumping up against the, the time limit here um, your latest book is an updated version of Witness to Roswell. Seventy-five
2: anniversary, seventy-fifth anniversary edition. So, it was the editor came to us and asked if we would provide new material, which we did. We wrote new chapters, and uh...
1: and, and that was what happened to me. And somebody, the publisher, came to me and says, "Can you do an updated version?" Uh, we, we so we came up with understanding Roswell and looked at the whole cases in a more dispassionate way. Uh, once again, I want to thank Don for taking time out to spend uh, an hour with us today talking about UFOs and where everything is going. The blog, once again, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. The latest book is Understanding Roswell. And take a look at the uh, Land case. And if you liked it, put in a rating because it does help us a little bit. I will be back in uh, 167 hours with a new guest and a new program. So thank you for stopping by.